Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Princeton Tory podcast. My name is Billy Wade, and this is the first of a long line of the new medium of the Princeton Tory, the only and greatest conservative publication on Princeton campus. I am one of your co-hosts, Billy Wade of the class of 2023, and our other co-host, Hi, I'm Lexi Hiltonen. I'm part of the class of 24. And basically what we're going to be doing with this podcast is we're going to be including article features from the Princeton Tory, as well as current event discussions, distinguished professor interviews, as well as distinguished student interviews, such as our two guests today, which we can now introduce. And Billy, I'll let you do that. Perfect. Yes. So our two distinguished guests today are the Princeton Tory's editor-in-chief and publisher. So first off, Adam Hoffman, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm super glad to be here and super excited for what's to come with the Tory podcast. <laughs> perfect, perfect. So Adam, can you tell us a, just a little bit about, about yourself and introduce yourself to the Tory community? Yeah, um, uh, I'm editor-in-chief of the Princeton Tory, class of 23. Um, most interested in political theory, particularly questions of nationhood and sovereignty um, and the people that fall in between nations. Um, that's kind of where my studies um, are directed and a lot of my extracurricular passions um, are, you know, placed here with the, with the Princeton Tory. I'm from Houston, Texas. Maybe I should have said that first. <laughs> no, you are all good, Adam. You're, you're doing great. <laughs> and I definitely appreciate that because as a fellow Texan, it's great to have more Texans at Princeton. Now, our second guest is the great and wonderful Akil. Akil, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, hey, uh, my name is Akil. I'm the uh, publisher of the Princeton Tory, and um, I do other stuff on campus, uh, various conservative groups, um, led the, founded and led the Federalist Society for a while. And um, yeah, I, I'm a senior and I study American constitutional law and constitutional theory. Perfect. Fantastic. That's my house. Fantastic. So one question for both of you guys is what made you decide to join the Tory? Uh, I think um, Princeton is a liberal campus. That's no secret. Um, and what the Tory offers is a community of um, conservative thinkers, right-leaning, um, right-leaning folks. And when you share first principles, uh, when you kind of agree on a lot of the foundational points, you're able to find a much richer and deeper discussion. Um, that's what I was looking for, and that's exactly what I found here. Um, so that that's that's what prompted me to join um, join the Tory. Uh, I first joined because uh, a number of my friends were doing it. I thought it would be a cool thing to do. So I joined as a staff writer in the spring of 2017, my freshman spring, and then I took a year off and uh, dropped off the Tory map and then, uh, and then came back in, in, I believe, the fall of 2018 as head opinion editor, and then you know, went from there. Uh, but by the time I rejoined, I, um, I understood what the Tory was about, and it was a great time, and I... Uh, I liked the work that people were doing. And uh, by then I'd gotten into writing op-eds and articles myself. And so the Tory gave me a good place to, to edit and to lead the opinion section. Uh, and yeah, we go from there. But having experience as a writer, I think was, was a good, 
jumping off point to lead the Tory. That's great. So obviously sometimes peer pressure can lead you to do good things. <laughs> Conservative things. <laughs> peer pressure usually only leads in the other direction. So it's nice when it leads in this one. In, in this one. True, true. So just one more quick question for you guys. What is the difference between editor-in-chief and publisher? For those who aren't exactly versed in journalistic studies or whatever else, what does that mean? Well, I can't speak for journalistic organizations generally, but at least at the Tory, I think they bear some semblance. Um, but as far as the Tory is concerned, the publisher is sort of, um, I guess, the president of other clubs. So the um, the person ultimately responsible uh, for the publication, and at least during his or her tenure. And they report directly to the board of trustees, um, and uh, bear ultimate responsibility for everything that's published and have the, uh, and make the call on what, what's published and what's not and deal with, you know, publishers and um, head up, you know, if we don't really do this, but if, uh, but if a publication has to deal with ads, then they would, you know, they, they deal with the, uh, both the editorial side and the business side of things. Uh, the editor in chief is the head of the, um, the editorial wing of the publication. So uh, that includes, you know, managing day-to-day -day affairs from writers to editors to contributors, um, making sure the, all the edits that come go through the pipeline, all the pieces that go through the pipeline are, are good, ready to publish. And, um, and then the editorial work is on point. The publisher is sort of a top level, um, uh, not so much the day-to-day -day stuff. The ed editor-in-chief is working on uh, pieces that come through, setting the issues, setting the schedule, following up with writers, editors, making sure the work is uh, coming through as expected. Yeah. And, and so, and Adam, organizationally, the way it works is the board of trustees uh, formally elect a publisher, who's the only elected, uh, uh, the elected uh, official of the Tory. Everyone else is appointed. Um, and according to at least the way the Tory works is um, the the trustees take the popular vote of the uh, of the organization as a as a suggestion and then they vote themselves um, and appoint the publisher and then the publisher appoints everyone else. And so Adam, we have our new Tory publication coming up on free speech, and so could you just talk and speak on which topics will be specifically covered in this free speech cover or? Sure. Um, and I think that there's no topic that's more relevant on Princeton's campus today than free speech. Um, in short, it's a timely issue. Um, we have articles coming out ranging from, you know, the great defense of John Stuart Mill's free speech argument to right-wing critiques of free speech. I'm particularly excited about an article Rebecca Adams is writing on the double standards of cancel culture. In her article, she highlights anti-Semitism, um, how cancel culture will shut down those who say the wrong thing on certain issues, namely race, which of course, um, in my opinion at least, there is space for, but when it comes to other issues and other hates, 
That's not something that they do. And um, I'm not sure how many uh, articles you know, you'd like me to go into, but we're also having a news piece come out by Cassie James and Allie Nunes on the pulse of campus. What is it to hold a minority opinion on a college campus um, that's wrought with cancel culture? Um, and I think that will kind of touch on um, why this issue is so important. Well, that's perfect, Adam. It, it, it's good to give a, a few small hints in, into the, the issue, but if you give away everything now, no one will ever log on to theprincentory.com. So you are so right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And now, Akil, um, it may, may be a bit of a truism nowadays, but what makes free speech so important on college campuses in general and at Princeton University in particular? Uh, well, I don't know if there's a Princeton University in particular. Everything I think that's valuable about free speech and higher education applies across the board. I don't think there's anything particular about Princeton that makes makes free speech particularly valuable there. Um, that said, free speech is obviously a very important value for higher education, uh, at least I think, because uh, education itself or, or comprehensive and education that's worth pursuing is impossible without the ability to engage freely with views of various sides. And um, to the extent that one already has certain biases and uh, viewpoints that one wants reinforced, there's no point coming to a university that's easily available in the world. You just form yourself into little cliques that tell you what you want to hear. But that's not what we um, really associate with a good education which is being exposed to novel ideas and being able to make up one's own mind and pursue uh, the fields of study or pursue questions and avenues of inquiry that, you know, may make others or even oneself uncomfortable, but that's, that's kind of what we associate with a good education and um, the ability to sort of seek the truth and uh, find value in that pursuit. Is, is what makes for a good education. So I think that, that, I, that applies across the board. Yeah. Go ahead, Adam. So Akil, how, how then do you think about your role in the Tory, a journal committed to a certain set of ideas, um, to a certain, I, I guess, most broadly defined ideology? Um, why not get involved in the Daily Prince, which you know, really brings in opinions from all different sides um, and puts that, theoretically, brings in opinions from all different sides um, and puts that in their opinion, uh, opinion pages. Why are you then spending your college years um, working at a place, committing uh, to an institution like the Princeton Tory? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think uh, the idea is that we have certain views on certain things and uh, one hopes that those are sort of, you know, well thought out and uh, arrived at by way of reason and places you know play entities like the princeton tory or the prince or the princeton progressive or um, any number of the thousand publications on campus have their own place and that's not to say they're sort of shelters of uh, shelters of orthodoxy but uh, in a way that departments shouldn't necessarily be conservative or liberal uh, overwhelmingly. They should be, uh, you should have a mix of ideas that represent views of various kinds. Uh, 
because they're committed to education. And it's, it's the same way with, uh, with the interaction between publications is uh, publications, whatever their um, sort of editorial views should be able to freely engage with views of various kinds. But that's not to say, you know, uh, there's no place for uh, conservative publications or liberal publications or libertarian ones. They, they represent certain ideas and they advocate for certain ideas. Uh, but that advocacy should never really get in the way of truth. Like, you know, I, I lead the Tory because I think conservatism has more truth than other, uh, than other fields of inquiry. But that doesn't mean, you know, you, just because you believe something to be true, you, uh, you start shutting, shutting down competing publications, right? That's, that's, that's where you start crossing the line. Exactly, exactly. Because, you know, like any, arg ar any argument is like a knife. You have to run a stone against it for it to get sharper. And so by us engaging in those conversations and those debates, we're able to better refine our arguments and even question those that maybe need some questioning even. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's Mill's point in On Liberty, right? That's, that's, that's sort of the crux of his point is that if you're, there, free speech is a win-win, right? Either you're wrong and, you're, and someone tells you you're wrong, shows you you're wrong. And the fact that they're allowed to tell you you're wrong brings out the fact that you're wrong and you, you learn to, um, and you sort of uh, get closer to the truth, right? And you, by way of reason, you're shown and persuaded that you're wrong and here's what's right. And, and you know, very few debates have two sides as cut and dried, but you know, that, that can be replicated along multiple axes. And you're, um, and you get closer to the truth because you're wrong and now you're less wrong in a certain sense. But, uh, and if you're right, then clashing with opposing views and understanding why people think another way helps you sharpen your arguments. Or maybe, you know, if there's, uh, helps you sharpen your arguments and helps it, um, and helps you persuade others who may not be persuaded by use of force. Because force can never persuade. All you get by use of force is just, uh, is just sort of an outward uh, obsequiousness. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's the same thing with the, it's the same thing with religious, um, with trying to impose your religion on other people by use of force. Yeah. All, all you get is sort of Bibles and homes and, you know. Uh, let's you know, let's suppose you're speaking different languages, right? The conservatives right. are arguing for their point in, you know, through a certain lens. The progressives are, you know, arguing for their truth um, through a certain lens. You know, to what extent does free speech recognize that, um, right? That, um, you know, as our great president Eisgruber would say, right, the conversation needs to go on within a certain parameter of respect. Yeah, no, I mean, the thing with respect is, I, I, respect is usually just... Uh... Uh, I, I've come to realize it. Sort of, I mean, obviously. For the record, people. for the record, that was sarcastic. The <laughs> no, I know, but it's a, look, I mean, uh, even if it's not meant ironically, it's a good point, which is how, I mean, a classic, uh, Vermeule makes this case, a classic sort of. That's what I'm touching on. Idea where free speech to break down is the view that free speech shouldn't exist, right? Free speech is bad. It's sort of the most common uh, critique of a doctrine of free speech, which is, well, do you tolerate anti-free speech movements? 
right? Because that's when you know you you, you clash at the very at, at the at the most uh, at the bedrock of the value. I mean, Vermeule and Amari are kind of just grabbing at post-Marxist philosophers, right? Gramsci, Althusser, you know, and all of those. So, the, you well, know, this is, matter, I think, I think um, less so a right-wing argument or left-wing argument. It's more of a powerless argument. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the classic, I mean, if we're talking about Mill, the classic critique of Mill comes from James's James Stevens, who, you know, that's, that's sort of Mill's greatest critique. And, um, Part of his point is that uh, there are certain things that just that just sort of tear institutions and tear good institutions apart because people start losing faith in them, and uh, that's that's a huge problem. I mean, uh, words. I, mean, I don't subscribe to the words or violence rhetoric. Right? That's that's too far, but one can't deny that words do have consequences and that in the wrong hands, people can do a lot of harm with, um, with words. Well, that, does, that doesn't sound very pro-free speech to me. Yeah, but uh, so, that's, so that's, that's one side, but the other side is the way you fight that is not by shutting that down. The way you fight that is by having ideas of your own, right? It's more words with consequences. Yeah, more words with consequences, and it, and it makes for a better polity. Right? Not Until it blows of, up. Not, Until it blows uh, up. Yeah, the, the point is to make sure it doesn't. Um, you get that, but with, through good education, you get that through, uh, through open-mindedness and not sort of latching on to ideas to which you're first exposed, but being able to actually engage with, um, uh, with ideas of all kinds. And uh, that's... That's how you get to a good republic. And then the point is, well, if, you, if people are so, um, are such, uh, such tame animals that they can't really uh, figure out what ideas are actually good for them and vote accordingly, then, you know, maybe the whole concept of a republic breaks down <laughs> and people shouldn't be governing themselves if they can't deal with, uh, with this basic level of freedom. Because this was Justice Scalia's point on, some, on something as simple as, you know, campaign finance laws which is if, if people just gobble up everything, everything they see on TV, right? The whole argument for, for restricting the amount of money in elections is that too many ads, right? Too many attack ads, too much is going on. And if people just swallow everything on TV, then what's the, what's the point of having a republic if people can make up their own minds? All right, let's move on to Kaz. <laughs> if I get too much into constitutional law, I'll just text and no one stop. <laughs> No, you're yes. fine. Someone needs to offer a sign. <laughs> I was, but in terms of Professor Joshua Katz, so his incident occurred back in July. I'm not as informed as I could be on the situation, but I do know that he wrote an essay on his own, not associated with Princeton, and was completely attacked by the Department of Classics and all their administrators for stating that he thought the Black Justice League, which has previously been pretty dominant at Princeton, as a terrorist organization. And I just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on that in the sense of free speech and the backlash that came with it, if it was in a, <laughs> in a scope um, valid. Yeah, I think it's chilling when a university president threatens a professor for sharing um, their political views independently. Um, uh, and that's exactly what President Eisgruber did. 
um, you know, in the end, I think um, the right side won out. Um, but nonetheless, to ask what kind of precedent this shows, um, it, it doesn't bear well for the future and um, what professors and people in general will feel comfortable sharing, knowing that it could have real um, unfortunate consequences for them. That I think is the end of free speech. I totally I, I agree with everything you just said, Adam. And just to add on to that, what's different now versus even 20 years ago is that with social media and everything else, a, a, a Princeton campus issue of, of, of one op-ed written by one professor instantly becomes a national issue. And you were seeing this everywhere between CNN to Fox News to Washington Post. They're all talking about one Princeton professor who talked about uh, one school organization. And I mean, he does use very harsh terms, but um, that's going back to Akil's point about free speech and about how that's that's how we get to better ideas. We we just have to allow those things, so then we can get to even better conclusions. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the cat's uh, incident was resolved. Uh, Ironically, well, because the fact that they went after him raised so much opposition to the kinds of measures that the university was considering, right? And a lot of support for uh, cats and the free speech movement. It brought people crawling out of the woodwork, you know, with fire and the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. It got picked up and generated such a such a storm that uh, Ice Gruber was practically forced to come out in his defense in a way that he might not have, and. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good thing that it, uh, uh, that it ended the way it did. Yeah, and absolutely. Hopefully, hopefully that momentum carries on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that's that kind of older news. Okay, go ahead, Adam. I'll just note one thing, though. I think in Professor Katz's case, it did resolve, um, you know, the, the end result. Um, I, don't, I don't know that I'd call it good, but it wasn't bad. Um, but for every Professor Katz, for every endowed chair at Princeton University, there are 10 professors at, you know, at other schools um, whose names aren't um, as weighty as Princeton's, um, who don't have the kind of defense that he does. Um, and that's who, in my mind, um, or, or at least for me, is what I'm thinking about when I think about the Katz case. Yes, worked out well here. Yes, Professor Katz was fortunate in the end, um, but for a whole, whole lot of folks, whole, whole lot of professors and employees, et cetera, et cetera, it doesn't work out well. And that's a great, great point to bring up, Adam. Thanks for doing that. So next, uh, we'd actually like to talk a little bit about the real prevalence of racism on campus um, and some of the discussions surrounding it. Uh, particularly surrounding the existence of so-called systemic racism, uh, the renaming of the Woodrow Wilson School of International Public Affairs, currently uh, the Princeton School of International Public Affairs after that change. So take this any way that, that you want, Adam. Yeah, so Princeton got, Princeton received some pressure a few years ago to rename um, the Woodrow Wilson School. They set up a commission and ultimately they decided um, the best path forward was not to rename the school. Um, recognizing um, Woodrow Wilson's complex history, the best path forward 
was um, to recognize, yes, that complex history, but also to know that he's being remembered in the school themed after him for some of his achievements. And that's the conclusion they came to five years ago. Five years later, President Wilson is still dead. There have been no massive discoveries about um, Wilson's legacy. The only thing to change was the pressure on the university, was the pressure, was the pressure on President Eisgruber. Um, and under that pressure, he buckled, the university buckled. Um, so this is not a decision that I could respect. One um, that's just made because of, um, because of more pressure. Fair enough, fair enough, yeah. I, I mean, uh, since four years ago and now, I don't think we've dug up Woodrow Wilson's body. I don't think we discovered that he was secretly a conservative. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it really does come down to an outside culture changing that then, uh, and just something else that's interesting about it is that four years ago, the school worked for months on this committee on whether or not they're gonna change it. And then in the matter of, it seemed like a few weeks this summer, they're like, actually, we're gonna to totally redo everything that we said four years ago. And uh, welcome to the new Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, case for sure. But Akhil, do you have anything to add to, to, towards that discussion? No, I mean, that's all right. I, uh, Matt Frank had a, had a good piece on systemic racism that I think everyone should read. But as far as renaming buildings goes, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. The university reached a great compromise a couple of years ago that I was in favor of. Uh, and it was slightly before my time, but when I came to know about it, I thought it was, it was a prudent move. And now they've sort of undone all of that in the span of a few, it wasn't even a couple of weeks, it was a few days, if that. Uh, and that's, that's deeply disturbing. And that's in part why uh, I, I revived the Princeton Open Campus Coalition to uh, push back against some of the other demands that whatever group was making these demands had. And that's a problem because renaming buildings, I think, is there's a slippery slope. People are imperfect. They've done, uh, in the case of Wilson, I mean, he's, he had a massive influence on Princeton and that's not to say he, he didn't have his flaws. And that's why we reached the compromise that we did. Um, but just to sort of buckle into the mob and uh, undo all of that in a span of a few days is deeply concerning. So Kiel, do you think there is room to rename buildings? Yeah, in some cases, in some cases. Uh, I think a lot of this does turn on case-by-case -case, uh, evaluations of uh, or to what degree has the person contributed to the institution or contributed to whatever bears his name or her name. And uh, on the other hand, you do have to sort of balance uh, what... Uh, balance the person's flaws and if they're so i mean a classic example i think is uh statues that are erected solely like confederate statues but where the person not being honored is being honored only for uh, his or her ties to the confederacy i still maintain as lincoln did 
during the war that the Confederacy was an act of treason. Now, we run into gray areas like Thomas Jefferson is a classic example, right? Slaveholder, but I think his, uh, but I think, you know, the contributions that Jefferson made far, far outweigh um, the, the imperfection of, uh, a, a moral imperfection as he realized, but the fact that he was imperfect and without whom this country wouldn't exist. And so there, those are just certain, uh, now that's obviously not to say slavery is excusable or it's bad, but these just come down to these kinds of case by case analyses in a way that I, I, I really wouldn't care about some um, captain in the Confederate army whose stature is being toppled um, and he didn't really have anything else to do in life other than, or didn't contribute in any other way uh, other than being a captain in the Confederate army. I, it's not something I care about all that deeply, uh, but Jefferson, Washington, uh, Madison, these are these are important figures in national history. And, uh, to say that they were slaveholders and so now they're canceled is to um, is to spit on a lot of graves. Yeah, definitely. And it's something that's super cool. I think about the Princeton Tory and and about the conservative movement uh, at this moment is that not everyone who is at the Princeton Tory or who would call themselves conservative would probably agree with everything that Akil just said. And you know what? That's awesome. And that's also why people should tune into the Princeton Tory, because it's here that you'll find these open and honest discussions between uh, more right of center folks who, who, who already agree on some first principles, but the rest of it is up for grabs. And, and through our ability to speak to one another, share our opinions, argue, uh, and hopefully be as cordial as possible, we are able to uh, better sharpen our own arguments and better persuade others. I completely agree. And Akil and Adam, I want to thank both of you. Billy and I both want to thank you for being on this podcast, especially for the first episode, making your introduction with an abundance of knowledge, especially Akil. But um, we also wanted to Adam, thank... Adam, you're also very, very smart, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> We want to thank we're, our. We're all staff. smart. We're all smart if we're here for involved in the story. That's the final line. We want to thank our sound editor, Jermaine Washington, and our content producers, Matthew Wilson and Christopher Kane. Thank you for making this a possibility, and we'll see you next time. Bye.